Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I am here with another podcast taking us beyond the board. And today my special guest is Robert Dulesky, the designer of Wars of Marcus Aurelius and the upcoming Silico. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm great, Liz. How are you? I am doing great now that we're talking. So you are, like me, someone who is an aficionado of later Roman history. What drew you to Marcus Aurelius in particular, and then we'll move on to Stilicho. Okay, that's a great question. Um, well, yeah, as, as you said, I mean, later Roman history is absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I think you would sort of uh, agree that it's a kind of an underrepresented period in, you know, in not just games, but sort of in literature and in a lot of sort of uh, different types of representational media. But it's so rich for characters and history and drama and conflict and all these sorts of things. And it's a really, really fascinating story. And it's something that I've been interested in for quite a while. When it comes to Marcus Aurelius, I mean, he's sort of, he's a really kind of transitional figure in a way, isn't he? Because he's sort of right at the, in a way, at the sort of the inflection point for the Roman Empire, for the um, for the, the, the whole kind of uh, big picture of the Roman Empire. Things really start to go to crap after him. Um, and begin a long kind of the long, slow decline that leads to the eventual collapse of the uh, Western Empire. Uh, so I find him a really kind of interesting figure. You know, in one ways, he's he's this incredibly competent, incredibly relatable, incredibly um, sympathetic figure. And on the other hand, like I say, he's sort of he's right at the precipice of of the of the mountain, right at the edge of the cliff before things start to kind of go down right before the wheels come off. And I, I find that really interesting. And I found the Marcomannic Wars to be a really kind of interesting uh, period because it reflects a lot of these dynamics in a way, you know? Yeah. Uh, one thing that really interests me about Marcus Aurelius is that we kind of view him as this exceptionally wise emperor. He's the author of the Meditations. He's a Stoic philosopher. And he is in a line of emperors that people generally seem to have respected I thought we're doing a good job, but he also breaks tradition and tries to promote his son, Commodus, who turns out to be a disaster. And as you enjoy referring to in some of the cards in Wars of Marcus Aurelius, we also have fun with his wife, Faustina. And I love it every time the Alexander of Abonatakis card comes up. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, uh, uh, Pearl Marcus seemed to be, you know, a little susceptible to, you know, quacks um, and to, you know, to the follies of his wife and and children in a way. And I think in some ways that kind of makes him more relatable a little bit, don't you think? Absolutely. So for clarity, would you like to be the one to tell everybody about Alexander the Quack Prophet? Sure. I mean, Alexander was this, um, I think he was from Egypt and he was kind of this, a little bit of a kind of a snake oil salesman uh, in a way. Almost literally. L literally, yeah. He had like, he was part of a snake cult, wasn't he? Yes, he was. So he had a snake puppet. He was a snake puppet salesman uh, in the sense that he had a, a talking snake that would dispense oracles. <laughs> 
<laughs> and people were very taken with him. Um, there's actually a I'm sure you've read it. There's a lovely satire for those of you who are curious uh, by Lucian of Samosata called just Alexander the Quack Prophet that makes fun of him mercilessly and is hilarious. Yeah, it's quite remarkable that that we've got, you know, that sort of um, document from that period, you know, that it's like that this guy was, you know, I, I hate to kind of compare him to Dr. Phil, but he was a little bit of a kind of a, a little bit of a figure like that, I think, in a sense where he had, he had kind of an undue influence for what he was actually <laughs> capable of kind of, uh, kind of handling. Um, there's a great story, I think, that he advised Marcus to throw a pair of lions into the uh, Danube River uh, to, to kind of divine the outcome of the upcoming war. And I think that what happened was the, the, the lions swam to the far side of the river and the, the Germans didn't know what they were. They thought they were a pair of big wet dogs by the time they got out of the water and they clubbed them to death. So the omen didn't really turn out very well for the Romans. It is such a good story. And, you know, we also have Faustina. I love that card that just says, oh, Faustina. It's a bad card to draw in the game, but I laugh every time I draw it. <laughs> it's a bad card. I mean, Faustina, uh, his wife, from from what we understand, I think that Marcus really did love her and really was um, you know, quite loyal to her, but she wasn't a great partner for him, that she was involved in all sorts of affairs and scheming and all that kind of thing and got wrapped up in a really kind of bizarre, almost kind of conspiracy that almost led to... Um, you know, the usurpation of, of her husband, uh, which was to do with the rumor that he had died. And I guess that Faustina was back in Rome and she'd heard a rumor that uh, Marcus had died on the front. And um, she started looking for a, a protector for herself or a way of kind of protecting her interests and protecting, probably protecting her life, she thought, and uh, threw in with a guy named Avidius Cassius, who was a, a, a general who had hitherto been loyal to Marcus, but kind of convinced him to make a play for the crown. And then it turned out that he, uh, that Marcus wasn't dead. And it was like, oops, there we go. <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> Poor old Davidius Cassius didn't make it out alive, but uh, Faustina did. Although I'm sure there were some interesting uh, uh, dinner table conversations after that. Definitely awkward. So for me, <laughs> it's stories like this just bring this time period to life and I love them. And I do wonder, why, why is it that you think that we are more attracted to maybe another game about Julius Caesar than we are to a game that's about later Rome? It's a good question. I don't know that there's a really kind of simple answer. I think part of it is that the earlier stuff is about Rome on the rise. And it's about the kind of inevitable, sorry, inevitable march of Rome you know, to its kind of great historic destiny of, as one of the greatest empires in, in all of history. And what follows that is this sort of long, slow decline, which doesn't always kind of fit with the sort of popular narrative. You know, when you play games, a lot of times you want to be on the winning side, and it's more fun to play the Romans when they're winning. And I think that might be part of it. I don't know. What do you think? I think that is part of it. I, I do also think that we gravitate to what is more famous, what is more exciting. And, you know, I think a lot of people think about Julius Caesar. I mean, there's a Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar. And if you're going for something that most people will recognize on the shelf, I think you might pick somebody more recognizable. Exceptions would include something like Trajan. Mm -hmm. um, and a game that I really enjoy, uh, our friend Morgan guyon Retis. Uh, Pendragon, which is about the decline of Rome in Britain. So the games are out there, but I think that you're right about maybe being more interested in 
empires on the rise in growth and progress. I also do think, though, that something like the Marcomannic Wars, that was a messy war. You don't have all these great pitched battles. You know, there's no Marcomannic Actium. Exactly. Yeah. And that was that was something I was yeah. going to say as well, that I think from a wargamer perspective, something like the Marcomannic Wars is really hard to model because we don't really know very much about any any battles associated with it. There's Carnuntum, which we have a little bit of information about, which seems to have been a terrible route for the Romans, a military disaster. And there's some fragmentary evidence of other specific conflicts or specific battles. But by and large, the whole thing looks like a 10-year quagmire, this sort of push-pull on this uh, very, very wide front along the Danube, you know, with these dense forests and a lot of, you know, scrabbling over miles of, of woodland sort of thing to see who would control it. And that doesn't also kind of fit with the narrative of the Romans that we, we tend to like. We like to think of Roman battles as being these highly organized, you know, sort of pitched, uh, pitched field fights and uh, where Roman logistics are going to kind of win the day and Roman discipline is going to carry the field. And what you see in the Marcomannic Wars is a lot of really dirty fighting and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of really hard scrabble conflict that doesn't really fit, I think, with our popular picture of how the Romans conducted war. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when I think about the design of Wars of Marcus Aurelius, it is a game that's very much about managing disasters as well as you possibly can. And every time you put down one of the enemy tribes, there's a chance that they can come back and rise again. There are conflicts in the eastern part of the empire. There are people at home that you need to keep happy, even though you are in the middle of a messy war. What inspired you to bring all of these elements together into this game? It's a really good question. I think Part of it was just an attempt on my part to understand what happened. You know, sometimes, you know, a way in for me with game design has sometimes come from, you know, really being interested in a period and really trying to find a way to understand the periods and understand the, some of the central dynamics of the history from that era. And the Marcomannic Wars, as you said, that whole period was a really messy time. There's also a terrible, you know, it's kind of apropos right now because there was a terrible plague going on. One of the great plagues of history, um, which was probably smallpox or measles, which had a devastating impact on the Roman Empire and on the entire Mediterranean world. And in fact, some historians would say that that played a role in uh, the crisis of the third century, you know, the kind of the loss of uh, the loss of labor, the damage to kind of social institutions and so forth, that it really kind of it really had a, a very major effect on the Roman Empire. Millions and millions of people died. So it's a very, very messy period. It's a really kind of messy fight. And, you know, part of my initial way into the game was just trying to map all this out and trying to understand what happened. It was trying to sort of understand the history. And I don't even know if I thought it was going to be a game at that point. I was just sort of really kind of interested in the period and trying to figure out what were some of the central dynamics. And the, the key kind of turned out to be trying to understand what kind of decisions does someone like Marcus Aurelius have to make during a war like this? You know, the game is at a very, very kind of high scale. It's at a very kind of um, very high level strategic scale. and you know, there's lots of fighting in the game, as you know, but it's not about the sort of specifics of the battles or the tactics of the battles. It's about this sort of push me, pull you kind of dynamic that's going along the various fronts on the Danube and also these sort of kind of distracting off map conflicts that are also kind of siphoning resources and time and opportunity away from, uh, from Marcus Aurelius. 
And uh, the decision space that he had was something I was really kind of interested in. Like, how do you do that? How do you how do you manage to kind of you know you've got all these sort of pots bubbling over. And you've got a war that's really, you know, it's about trying to force your enemy. You, you can't really defeat them, but you're trying to force them to surrender. But then they can go around and unsurrender on you, you know. And how do you keep them kind of tamped down and and draw the war to some type of conclusion? And I found that really, really interesting. And kind of working out through some of the history and reading this, and kind of getting caught up in the period and really being fascinated by it is sort of uh, what led me into it as a piece of game design. And I think played a really big role in some of the mechanics in the game as well. So Marcus Aurelius turned out great as the subject of a game, but he was not your first love from what I understand. So Marcus Aurelius may be your, is it your first published game? Yeah, Marcus Aurelius is the first published game. But it's not your first game. It's not, no. Uh, actually, Stilico uh, was created earlier uh, in a different form. Should we talk about a bit about that? Absolutely. Tell us about the awesomeness that is Stilico. <laughs> okay. So Stilico was actually the first piece of game design that I undertook. Uh, and again, for the, a lot of the same kind of reasons, I was just really, really fascinated with this period in the early fifth uh, century, all this sort, of, this sort of chaos that was going on in the Western Empire in particular, and really became interested in, in Stilico, you know, the, the, the kind of the poor guy that had to manage all this, you know, had to manage... Uh, how to manage a very complex relationship with Alaric, how to manage, you know, vandals and various Asodic tribes uh, just pouring over the Rhine, how to manage an usurper coming down from uh, from uh, Britannia. And, you know, I got really interested in kind of the, the, deci the decision space that this guy had to deal with, also while trying to keep the, his head on his shoulders. You know, he wasn't the emperor. Silico was the uh, Magister Militum, which is sort of like the, you know, they sometimes say commander in chief of the combined uh, armed forces of the Western Empire. But he didn't have the kind of complete control that someone like Marcus Aurelius or Trajan had. And he had to be very, very careful about how he conducted himself and, and how he kind of managed the politics of the court. And I just found all that really, really fascinating. The original design for the game was actually, the, the scope was quite a bit larger than what uh, what's coming out with Stilico. Originally, I had um, worked on a game that was going to cover the entire period from Stilico down through Aetius. And kind of conclude, oh, wow. yeah, and conclude it with uh, conclude it with Attila the Hun, with a sort of almost like this boss fight against Attila the Hun. And the game design at that point, this is going back about five years. The, the game design was kind of more simple and more streamlined, and more along the lines of a uh, a kind of a state of siege game, because that was a kind of a major um, uh, kind of touchstone at. Uh, for me at that time. And I, I thought the mechanics were a good fit for that period as well. And the game mm -hmm. was completed and it was actually, you know, I, I entered into uh, a, an agreement with a with a company, not with Hollandspiel, but with another company to develop it and publish it. And it just, as happens sometimes, the, the game kind of languished and um, the company uh, kind of moved into different directions and the, the, the company doesn't actually even exist anymore. They kind of, uh, they, they kind of various misadventures and so forth, different things happened to them. So I was able to get the rights back. And by that point, I had moved on to Marcus Aurelius and, uh, and uh, Tom and Mary had published it. And I had such a wonderful time working with Tom and Mary that I went back to them and I kind of pitched them this game. But I wanted to revisit the material and I wanted to kind of take what I'd learned from Marcus Aurelius and look at a way of kind of focusing it and kind of just getting the specifics a little tighter and getting the game design a little tighter. And that's that's sort of what led to this new version of Stilico. So unlike Marcus Aurelius, who had the whole empire in the palm of his hand at one point, Stilico, he's almost a tragic 
figure, someone who had a whole lot of responsibilities put on him that I don't know if anybody could have fulfilled and then was punished for not being able to cope, in my opinion, with with all of the problems that were besetting the Roman Empire. How is this going to become a winnable game or is that going to be the object? Well, that's a really good question. And, you know, you can actually kind of win this game. So you can do better than Stilica, which is to say that you can potentially tamp down these these various uh, conflicts that you've got to deal with. So just to give you a really kind of quick idea of how it works, it's it's quite similar to Marcus Aurelius in the sense that you have... Um, you have different fronts and you have enemies that are kind of coming down different fronts. You have an usurper, which is based on Constantine III, who's coming down from uh, Britannia and making his way to Ravenna to replace Honorius. You have uh, Alaric the Goths, uh, Al- sorry, Alaric and his Goths, who are, are coming into Italy and making their way towards Rome. And then you have the Vandals, you know, the Vandals being kind of a catch-all phrase for Vandals and Lands and Swabies and all these sorts of people that are coming over the um, over the Rhine and they're making their way down into Hispania. And uh, you've got to deal with all this sort of stuff as well as keeping your head on your shoulders in the court. There's kind of, you have a foil in the court, a guy named Olympias, uh, who's plotting against you inside the court. And uh, you can die. I think it's actually quite a, quite a, 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 a more difficult game than uh, Marcus Aurelius in a lot of ways. But I, I think it's important to allow win conditions for players, you know, so you're going to lose most of the time. But like, what if, you know, the, the historical what ifs of these games are great. What if you actually manage to kind of come up with an optimal strategy given the all the kind of difficulties you're facing. And what if you manage to suppress that usurper and make peace with the Goths and push back the Vandals? I think it's a great kind of a great sort of fun uh, bit of speculation, you know, and allowing the player to achieve that was something I wanted to do with this game so that you're not simply just, you know, putting out fires. You do have a chance to maybe change history a little bit by managing these, uh, managing these situations a little bit than uh, poor old dear Stilica was able to. That is a really interesting take. I'm looking forward to playing this a lot. I, I do wonder, though, so both Stilico and Alaric are very interesting figures of their time. Why did you choose to do a game from Stilico's perspective as opposed to Alaric's? You know, that's a really good question. And I thought about that. And at one point I thought about kind of changing that. And I would still, at some point, I've, I've played around with the idea of doing some design work from the point of view of the so-called barbarian people, um, because it's a very different story, right? If you look at it from from their perspective, and um, you know, we're very used to sort of seeing these these stories told t- through Roman eyes, because that's who we have the you know the documentation from primarily. But it's a very different story if you look at it from from their point of view, and I, I think that there's uh, a great game in there somewhere. As for why Stilico versus Alaric, um, I think it came from you know, a desire to kind of look at things from a big picture and really kind of look at what was going on in the whole Western empire at that time and be able to kind of play with different aspects of that. Uh, all these sorts of problems that Stilico had to manage, you know, Alric sort of had one problem, which was, um, managing his relationship with the Roman empire and kind of dealing with Stilico and, and, and providing for his people. And it's a very compelling problem, of course, and it's a very compelling situation, but Stilico had to kind of deal with that and, you know, six other things at the same time. And I, I thought that kind of created a very interesting decision space for the player. So when you talk about both Marcus Aurelius and Stilico, one thing I find very interesting when you talk about your game design is that you are using the game as a way to work out your perspective on 
a historical situation or to model the problems that these ancient people would have been facing is gaming just the way that you like to work things out i think it's you know i think gaming is a tremendous opportunity for almost a kind of interactive history you know and we always have to be really careful when we talk about models because i mean what's that old saying that all models are wrong but some models are useful there's something some, <laughs> something along those lines right i think i've heard volko say uh, say something like that so you've got to be careful with you know with how much you think you can model and how much you can capture in a model but i think what um, games like this can do is maybe just provide a little bit of a taste of what the decision space was like for people like uh, Marcus or people like Stilico at a particular point in time. And that maybe can bring us a little bit closer to some of the drama and some of the history of, of the period. I find that really, really interesting. What got you into Roman history in the first place? Was it a high school class, a college class, a book you read as a kid? What was your entry point into all of this? It was Jim Peets, my high school history teacher. God, God bless high school history teachers. You know, um, they, they open the, uh, the minds uh, of so many people and they open up, you know, uh, so many students to a love of history and a kind of um, a greater understanding of history. And uh, yeah, I had a, just a terrific, a terrific high school history teacher. That's fantastic. So you did not, however, grow up to be a historian yourself, although you are a teacher. You are in film production. That's right. Yeah. My, my day job, as it were, is working in film and television. And that's something that I've done uh, for my entire career. So I actually work as a director and direct TV commercials. I've directed a number of short films. I also work as a writer. I've written, uh, written uh, feature uh, screenplays and I write for a TV show right now. So you have this immensely creative career and life. What is game design doing for you on top of all that? Do you feel that your creative drives are interrelated or is board gaming sort of a respite from what you do day to day? No, it's really interesting. I think it started out as a bit of a respite because it was a way of just getting out of all of the kind of the film and TV stuff and a way of kind of going in a, in a really kind of completely direct different direction. But then I started noticing certain parallels, <laughs> which kind of maybe maybe made it less of a kind of a relaxing sort of thing for me. You know, with um, you know, narrative is very important to me in games. And I know that I know that there's uh, you know, some designers I think uh, take a very strict simulationist approach to looking at a uh, at a conflict or a period of history. It's almost like where you're letting uh, a kind of a simulation play out, and you're kind of observing, and you're you're providing some level of input and and directing kind of things that way. I really like the stories, and I really like the drama, and I think that's a, a strong connection between the two. You know that there's there's an interest in kind of seeing what kind of stories come out of these. There's something called emergent storytelling, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and that's sort of the interest or fascination with how stories can emerge almost organically, you know, not according to a strict on rails plot, but sort of seeing how randomness and uh, participation and um, observer uh, reaction and input can kind of change the course of a story. A great example of that are, you know, role playing games and so forth, which is something I've also been interested in and, and kind of played my entire life. So the narrative stuff I find really interesting. Um, the research part is also really interesting for me because I'm used to researching for 
my uh, my TV projects or my dramatic projects, and I love research, you know, and that's something that comes, you know, I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can relate, you know, uh, from your own academic. Not at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's easy to go down a black hole, isn't it? You know, and and you start like when I was doing Marcus Aurelius, you know, um, the research is a little thin in some places. And I started getting into things like researching coins from the period and then researching some of the iconography on the, uh, the column of Marcus Aurelius. And then I got into looking at uh, archaeological reports of forts built along, uh, along the Danube that kind of relate back to the conflict and all this sort of thing. And I, that stuff is just great fun. And you find yourself doing that um, if you're preparing a piece to direct or if you're working on a game. And I think there's a real crossover in that sense. That is a really interesting take. So you mentioned emergent storytelling and role-playing. What does your personal gaming life look like outside of design? What do you like to play? That's a good question. Um, Well, everything's kind of being done or a lot's being done remotely right now, right? Uh, So I finally had to learn Vassal, which uh, have you ever used Vassal? Oh, I tried once. That was so bad. Oh, it's, there's a little bit of a help, a little bit of a learning curve on it, but, um, I'm using it right now. I've got a, a very good friend of mine and we play, uh, commands and colors ancients. We try to play at least once a week. Uh, it works terrific for that. Um, and that's a kind of a, a, a very fun, uh, fun diversion. Um, a lot of my gaming right now is being done with my family at home, uh, which is great fun because they're also into, into gaming as well. And we'll play games like, uh, like Scythe or, um, you know, we play Seven Wonders, and sometimes we'll do something a little bit uh, heavier or more thematic as well. We like to play Mansions of Madness. But in terms of role-playing games, we've just uh, all started playing um, Call of Cthulhu. I don't know if you've ever played it, the role-playing game. I have not. Are you enjoying Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I totally love it. I, I grew up on D&D and you know, played that for decades and uh, somehow managed to not get into Call of Cthulhu, and it's, which is kind of funny because it's something that's uh, the period of literature is really interesting to me. And I, I read a lot of pulp and I read a lot of stuff from the 20s and I've read a lot of H.P. Lovecraft, of course, and uh, you know, have kind of encountered it through other games. But we started playing this, just the three of us, and it's terrific. It's just, it's sort of like, you know, interactive storytelling around candlelight at night. And uh, it was just great fun. So I noticed that you are discussing a lot of gaming in terms of interacting with others, with your family, with your friends, and yet Wars of Marcus Aurelius is a solo game. Are you much of a solo gamer yourself? And if not, how did you end up designing such a good solo game? Oh, that's really funny. Um, You know, I hadn't thought of that, Uh, but it's a very good question. I do... Uh, or I used to, let's say this way, I used to do quite a bit of solo gaming, but tended to do more stuff of, you know, kind of getting a game and then playing both sides. And part of that was that when I started getting back into the hobby about maybe 10 years ago or so, you know, I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I think it's quite common that, you know, when you, when you first get into it, especially when you first get into something like board games and particularly something like war games, you just realize there's this incredible library out there, you know, of such fascinating material. And, you just want to take it all in all at once. That's sort of how I felt. And my interest in it kind of outpaced my ability to kind of um, uh, set up games or play games with people that I knew. So I found myself soloing a lot of it and uh, really kind of engaging with it that way. And I guess the solo design kind of came out of a, out of problem solving for me in one sense, which is, well, okay, well, you know, I want to, I want to play these games and I want to kind of set up something for myself to play. And is there a way that I could kind of you know, come up with a system that could kind of beat me, if you know what I mean, or it could kind of provide a challenge for me. And that's where I think that interest in solo play came from initially. That is really interesting. I'm pretty sure you could find me on record saying, I love to play games so much that I couldn't 
book enough games with other people to satisfy my appetite for gaming. So I became a solo gamer. So yeah, I really identify <laughs> with that. Uh, do you have any other solo specific games in your collection right now? Um, you know, it's funny again, like when I, when I first kind of got back into things, um, I used to play, you know, some of the state of siege games, um, really like cruel necessity, but I, you know, I, I haven't found the solo games quite as engaging recently as I used to in some respects. Although I think, you know, like Command Sharia, I don't know if you played it. That's a tremendous design. That's the Joel Toppin one. Absolutely yeah, agree. Absolutely. Just a phenomenal piece of work, I think. Uh, Mage Knight, I really like. I know that you've just done a series on Mage Knight. Um, it, it took me forever to wrap my head around the rules, but I think it's a really interesting piece of design. And, uh, you know, it really plays quite smoothly once you get your head wrapped around it. Um, but those... Those are a few that I'll I'll still kind of play as solo games, and I'll you know I'll still if I if I find a new design that I really like you know even if it's a two player game I'll I'll pull it out and I'll kind of play both sides and I'll try to figure out how it works and I'll kind of work my way through it. Um, I've been playing some of the Phil Eklund designs recently, um, you know, like Bios Origins and his you know game on Greenland and Neanderthal and so forth. And you know, I, a quick caveat on on Phil Eklund, I absolutely don't agree with his politics at all but i find his game design really really fascinating and i think he's such a good designer that um his designs open themselves up to a whole variety of different interpretations and can play out in some really interesting ways so i he's he's someone else who uh who I, I follow quite closely. That's such an interesting comment you made about politics versus gameplay one thing i often wonder is to what extent can you separate a game designer from their work. I mean, in some ways, your game, your games are statements about how you understand a historical period and what's happening. So to play that game is in some ways to step into your interpretation of the ancient world at the times that you're representing. Or do you not see it that way? No, I, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, and it's a really good question. It's something I kind of, I struggle with. I don't really know what the answer is, but I think that, you know, whatever the answer is, it's probably very similar to how we engage this way with literature or with other forms of art, you know? Um, and I think there is room to kind of separate the artist from uh, the art, particularly when the art is almost kind of more complex and more nuanced in a way than the artist is in some of the public statements, if you know what I mean. Like, I think this can be very interesting, you know, like, um, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of bang on about, uh, about, uh, Phil too much here. And I don't want to, I'm not, not trying to pick on him or anything like this, but you know, you can engage his, engage with his games and really enjoy them without looking at the footnotes <laughs> and, and find really <laughs> interesting kind of complex mechanics and a really different, and I find very fresh take on different aspects of history and different different dynamics in history that allow themselves uh, op to be open to different interpretations. And I think he's a really terrific designer in that sense. And I think that he's, you know, how he wants to nail down some of those dynamics in his footnotes in terms of his own, his own interpretations, that's up to him. And that's his prerogative. You know, this is a creative work that he's putting out there. But I think that it applies that way for all of us. You know, there might be people that, that don't you know, don't like my politics or don't like some of the dynamics in, in my games. But I, you know, hopefully what's in there is uh, good enough to kind of stand on its own and to provide a point of entry for people from all different sorts of backgrounds. Do you feel the same way about the short films that you make? That's interesting. I mean, those are perhaps 
more director kind of personal statements in in a sense, if you know what I mean. Like again, this kind of goes back to this idea of kind of emergent storytelling. You know, uh, a game is a story that's created by the designer plus the artifact plus the uh, person playing it. And you know, you can say a similar kind of thing about movies and books as well. That there's these sort of three these sort of three levels that are going on. But I think they kind of mix in different proportions. And I think that when you're watching a film, because a film is something that that unfolds in a linear fashion through time, you know, and you're, you're, you, you watch a certain number of images that occur in a certain order and you're very much caught up in the storytelling of the person making that story. Uh, same thing with literature. Whereas with games, there's a lot of kind of ways into, um, into the situation. And in, in a sense, it's almost like less the material in some ways and more the kind of mechanics and how the mechanics are presenting and restricting that material uh, you have to kind of work with. I don't know. I'm sort of, I'm sort of going off the cuff here. I hadn't thought about this. This is a really, really interesting question. Uh, so I don't have an answer. Oh, I don't actually think there is an answer. I enjoy asking questions that don't have good answers. <laughs> but uh, I think about gaming this way a lot too, because so much of how a game runs depends on the players. I mean, I'm a solo player, so usually I'm playing against the game. Or I wonder, you know, how many games that I play come out the way they do because I'm the one who's running the game. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you always think about multiplayer games where somebody spoils the game or there's a kingmaker or where, you know, gaming is an interesting art form because so much of the story's progress is left to people who are not the author. Absolutely. It's the ultimate reader response criticism. Absolutely. It's it's completely fascinating in that sense. And I think a lot of kind of modern design has been, um, you know, has taken that into account, you know, how to avoid situations like, uh, you know, kind of kingmaker situations, how to deal with things like player analysis paralysis, you know, and how to kind of keep everybody engaged while other people are taking their turn and so forth, you know, and that's, that's something I think that's been really interesting in you know, particularly in the last maybe 15 years or so. It's not that it wasn't dealt with before. It was, of course. Uh, and there's, there's really amazing designs that go back, um, you know, decades that kind of deal with different elements of this. But I think that that's something that's been kind of at the forefront is thinking about some of the social dynamics involved with gaming. Um, and I think there's some really interesting solutions out there. So before I let you go, do you have any other games in the pipeline yet? Or can you not tell us? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I continue to work on on different designs. Uh, time's been a little bit uh, tight in in uh, the recent past, so things haven't kind of progressed as quickly as I'd hoped. I would uh, be very interested in doing, you know, depending on what the response is to Stilico, I always kind of wanted to make it a trilogy and to do kind of one more uh, game maybe in this, um, you know, in this genre, sort of like late Roman history kind of thing. I mean, who knows, maybe I'll do more than just one more, but it's something that I would be interested in doing um, there. And we'll kind of see how, how Stilico goes and how kind of people uh, respond to it. So there's one possibility there. Um, I actually worked uh, quite a bit on a game uh, about um, 17th century sieges and the um, kind of Venetian Ottoman wars and so forth. That's an, another area that I'm quite interested in. And I just need to get the time to sit down and kind of do a little bit more work on that. So that's kind of two, two possibilities there. Well, I cannot wait to find out what happens next. Thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me, Robert. I really appreciate oh, it. Thank you, Liz. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. And, uh, and thanks for being such a, an amazing advocate for our hobby. So I can be reached pretty much anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. 
But where can people find you if they have questions? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm R. Dulesky, uh on Twitter. I'm on Instagram and um, not so much on Facebook these days, uh, but those would be the best places to, to try me, we'll say. We'll say Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much. Uh, everyone who's listening, do feel free to reach out to either of us with questions. We love it. And happy gaming.